Well, today we are wrapping up our series called Parables. And if you remember, the parable is something that Jesus told as a story, not just to, to illustrate a point that he wanted to make, but Jesus often told parables to make sure that people who were listening were actually listening. Not just hearing, but actually listening. So he wanted to know, are people actually listening with the right heart? Do they have the right motivation? However, today's parable is going to be an exception. Matthew, who is the biographer of this particular parable of Jesus that we're going to be looking at, he says that by the end of this particular story, every single person listening understood exactly what Jesus meant by what he was saying, including Jesus' enemies. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 21. That's where we're going to hang out today, Matthew chapter 21. We want to welcome those of you that are watching online with us as well. Right now, if you go into the upper right-hand corner there, you can click the little button called Talk Notes, and that'll give you all the scriptures that I'm going to be talking about here today. For those of you that are here live with us, not only are they going to be on the screen, they're also on your phone. You can pull that out. Just go to exponential.church, and you can get all the Talk Notes there as well. Now, as you continue to turn to Matthew chapter 21, let me give you a little bit of context about what Jesus is going to be talking about here today. Uh, this story is going to take place right after Jesus had cleansed the temple. If you remember that story, this is during Jesus, uh, the, the end of his ministry, and he is not happy about that the temple has been made into just a, a prophet center for the religious elite, and so he goes in, he just clears everybody out. So to say that tensions are a little high would be an understatement. And so this is literally like the very next story then that Jesus tells, and he has his disciples there, but also the religious leaders, they're listening in as well. So that's where we're going to pick up the story, because these religious leaders, they see Jesus as a real threat to everything that they've established. So in Matthew chapter 21, we'll begin with verse 33. Jesus says this, or it says this, that Jesus told the chief priests and the leaders to listen to this story. A landowner once planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, and he dug a pit to crush the grapes in it. He also built a lookout tower. Then he rented out his vineyard, and he left the country. Now, the prophet Isaiah, many years earlier, had told a very similar story about how God was this, this landowner, and that the nation of Israel was the land, and that when it came time for the harvest, all the fruit, all the grapes were sour and that the landowner had to destroy the land. And so the people, as they're hearing Jesus tell this story, they, they remember back to, to what Isaiah had been talking about, that Isaiah was talking about how the nation of Israel had to go into exile. They were captured by the Babylonians, that they had gotten rotten to the core, and so God had to destroy them for a short period of time. So as Jesus starts to tell this particular story, the people are like, oh, this is just like Isaiah's story. We've heard this story before, but now Jesus is going to add a twist to it. So we continue on in verses 34 to 37. Jesus says, when it was the harvest time, the owner sent some servants to go get his share of the grapes. But the renters grabbed those servants. They beat up one killed one and stoned one of them to death. He then sent more servants than he did the first time, but the renters treated them in the same way. Finally, the owner sent who? The owner sent his own son to the renters because they thought, or he thought, that they would respect him. Now, at first, this doesn't make any sense. Why would this, this landowner just continue to send servant after servant 
and then ultimately send his own son. He already knows what happened to the other people. They all got killed. But now he's going to send his son? I mean, this would be like me. Let's say I was like a high school principal. And I hear that one of the teachers has been beaten up by a student. And I say to the vice principal, I like, go check it out. And the vice principal goes and they check it out and they get beaten up. And I find out about that. And so I, I tell the security guard, you need to go check this out. And the security guard, he goes and he gets beaten up. Well, imagine now for a second that Lisa just happened to be visiting the office that day. And I said, you know, babe, why, why don't you go check it out? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? No, I'm not going to send my most precious thing to me into a very dangerous situation. But yet, that's what's happening here in this, this story. Why would this, this landowner send his son into a situation he knows is very dangerous? Well, we'll get back to that in just a little bit. But let's continue on with the story. Verse 38. But when, the, but when they saw the man's son, they said, someday he will own the vineyard. Let's kill him. And then we can have it all to ourselves. Again, this is absolutely crazy. If this man is wealthy enough that he owns multiple vineyards and he has multiple servants, why wouldn't he just like hire a security force to go and retake the land? But instead, he sends his son. And the renters go, cool, it's the son. Let's kill him and then it'll all be ours. Continuing on in verses 39 to 44. So they grabbed him, threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And Jesus asked, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what do you suppose he will do to those renters? The chief priests and the leaders answered, he will kill them in some horrible way. Then he will rent out his vineyard to people who will give him his share of the grapes at harvest time. Jesus replied, you surely know what the scriptures say. The stone the builders tossed aside is now the most important stone of all. This is something the Lord has done, and it's amazing to us. I tell you, God's kingdom will be taken away from you and will be given to people who will do what he demands. Anyone who stumbles over this stone will be crushed, and anyone it falls on will be smashed to pieces. Now, Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 118 here, and this was one of five different psalms that was actually sung during the, the time of Passover. Guess what time it was when Jesus is actually sharing the story? It's the time of Passover. And so what Jesus is trying to get them to see is, I am who everybody's singing about right now. I am this stone. I am going to be the, the cornerstone of everything. But you religious leaders, you've rejected the cornerstone. You have tossed out the most important stone of all. But Jesus is about to tell him, you know what? A new building is coming. A new building. And I'm going to be at the very foundation of it. I will be that cornerstone. If you don't quite get that, let me put it into a sports analogy. I see Rich has got a, a sacrilegious uh, shirt on there today. Uh, we'll pray for you, brother, uh, that you get saved. And repent of your sins and uh, come to the good side. Uh, like, like week one of the, uh, the Washington football team. Right? You guys seen that meme, you know, for the new football season, right? You know, it's like, Cowboys, Giants, Eagles, football team. 
Uh, but it, uh, I'll throw out a sports analogy for this. It, it, it's like a player getting cut from a team and saying, all right, you don't want me? I'm going to go sign with another team. And not only am I going to become an all-star, I'm going to be the MVP of the entire league, and I'm going to lead that team to a championship. Basically, that's what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders here. In verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these stories, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. Now, here's the thing. The, the leaders, they knew how previous generations of, of spiritual leaders in Israel had treated the prophets. How their very own ancestors had abused the prophets and mistreated the prophets over and over and over again. Jeremiah was beaten. He was thrown into a pit and he was stoned. Elijah and Amos, they were banished from the land and they were forced to live in caves for the rest of their lives. Ezekiel, he was murdered after giving a sermon to the people. Habakkuk, he was stoned in Jerusalem. Zechariah, he was actually chased into the temple in Jerusalem and then stoned near the altar area. Isaiah, he was put into a hollow log and then sawed into two. And this was all by the Jews to their own Jewish prophets. So the religious leaders that Jesus is talking about, they knew that this is what we had done to the prophets in the past. They knew their history, but they thought we would never do something like that. We're past being like that. We are too religiously advanced. We are too morally upright in order to allow something like that to happen in our generation. The irony, of course, is that they are about to do something even worse than what their ancestors had ever done, and that is they are about to kill the very Son of God. You know, one of the lessons we can learn from this is that we can never assume that the reason that such terrible things happened in the past is because, well, People in the past, back in the 1800s or the 1600s or, you know, in the year 1000, those people, they were barbaric. And, and we would never do something like that. We are too advanced to be like that. That we, we've come beyond that. That those past generations, they were so awful. They were just so sinful. I mean, they weren't woke like we are. Now, one of the lessons we can learn from the Bible is that over and over and over, generation after generation after generation is not only drawn into sin, but every generation is not exempt from the power of sin. We're all sinners. We're all susceptible to it. And so when you hear about people in the past, Christians even, in the past who did horrific, terrible things, sometimes in the name of Jesus, they enslaved people, they abused people, they mistreated people, they exploited people. Don't be so quick to assume, oh, we would have never have done that. That I wouldn't do something like that. Again, every generation is susceptible to sin. And so instead of saying, what is wrong with people? Instead, what we should be asking is, what is wrong with the human heart that would cause people to act in that way? And more specifically, What's wrong with my own heart? Why is it that all of us are drawn in to this thing called sin and that sin causes us to do such terrible things so often? 
You see, these kind of stories, whether it's from the Bible or today's headlines, shouldn't make us arrogant and proud. No, they should humble us and bring us to a place of repentance where we go, God, my heart is just as desperately wicked as everybody else in every generation that's come before me. And so God, help to change my heart. Help me to, to repent of my sin and become more and more like you. You see, for years, the nation of Israel had rejected the prophets. The people of Jesus' day, they, they thought that they were exempt from that type of hatred. But yet, here was God in the flesh standing before them. And not only did they reject them, but they hated them so much that they nailed them to a cross. They thought that their advances in religion had somehow given them a different kind of heart than everybody else. But yet they were wrong. And see, that's one of the dangers of religion is that it can blind you to the truth of what's really going on in your heart. And so what I want to do for the rest of today's message is I want to look a little bit more of how just desperate and desperately wicked is our hearts. And what are some of the lessons that we can learn here from this story that Jesus told? Again, all the other parables we've looked at in this series, and the ones that even Brian and Dustin shared, and didn't they do a wonderful job uh, helping out while I was gone? And thank you guys that you give me uh, some time off to just be able to, to refresh. But, you know, every single parable that the three of us shared Jesus says, only those who have ears to hear are going to understand. But this one, he said, man, every single one of you is going to understand. And in fact, Matthew says here that even religious leaders are like, hey, we know that Jesus is talking to us. That's what we got to understand today is that Jesus is talking to all of us here today, that our hearts are desperately wicked. So let's look at a couple lessons that we can learn here. The first one is this, that some unbelief is willful. You know, in the story, the Renners didn't murder the son because they were confused about who he is or who he was. They knew exactly who he was. They were like, that's the son. Let's murder him. Let's kill him. And then we'll take it all for ourselves. No, they willfully hated him. They willfully killed him. Keep in mind, Jesus is telling this story later in his ministry. He knows that the religious leaders of his day they have labeled Jesus as being dangerous to their religion. And so he tells this story as a way to sort of unveil where their hearts were truly at. To let them know that, that you're off track, you're off course here. That this is something that you're willfully doing. Your, your rejection of me, your hatred of me. You are willfully doing this. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, 7. He said, so many people become enemies of God because they're what? They're, their mind is controlled by what the flesh wants instead of submitting to God. In fact, they're what? They're, help me out, what? Online, go ahead and shout it out. They're what? Their mind is powerless to do so. Look, Paul is saying, your mind cannot submit itself to God. You can't think your way to God. Why? Because intellectually, you are always going to figure out something to object to God's word, something that will be of opposite, uh, that will oppose God's word. You're always going to intellectually figure out how to do what you want to do instead of what God wants you to do. So intellectually, we can't come to God. 
It's not our minds that save us. It's only when we repent and we have a true change of heart that then our minds are transformed. Let me say that again. You can't think your way to God because you will always think of a way to reject what God's Word says, to oppose what God's Word says. It's only when you truly give your life to Jesus and you repent of your sin, He will give you a change of heart, and that change of heart gives you a change of mind. Your mind can't do it. Richard Dawkins, who is probably the most famous atheist of this generation, once said this, and I'm sort of paraphrasing him here a little bit, but it was basically this gist. That he said, even if God walked into the room I was in, I still wouldn't believe in him. Because intellectually, I would be able to figure out the psychological or the sociological reason, or I'd be able to come up with the naturalistic reason of why this thing that people are calling God has shown up in the room. So, so again, our, our minds can't bring us to God because we'll always come up with a reason to object to his word. I guess what I'm really trying to say to you here today is this. Oftentimes we think that unbelief is a problem of the head, but unbelief is actually a problem of the heart. Our hearts are desperately wicked, and that impacts our minds. And until we allow God to come in and change our heart, then our mind will just stay the way it is. And so if you're one of these people that I've been sharing about throughout this whole series that, you know, is always saying, well, you know, I don't understand the Bible. I've tried to read it and stuff. Well, maybe that's a heart issue for you. Maybe you need to repent of your sin. You've got to have the right posture in order to have the right ears in order to hear. If not, you're always just going to question God's word. Anytime God commands to do something, you're going to say, well, I don't really think that's for me. Or I don't think that that's for us. Or maybe that was for previous generations, but not for our generation. So we've got to have a change of heart. Now, let me be very clear. Even though I just brought up Richard Dawkins and, you know, about people and their beliefs and stuff, I'm not talking just to atheists here. I'm talking about the, to many of you, you, you call yourselves followers of Jesus, that, that this is a heart issue even for Christians. This is a problem. So often, intellectually, we just want to discount God's word and what it says. Sometimes our unbelief is just willful. Remember in this story, the, 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 the people, they, they weren't atheists, you know, the, these people that were renting, they represented the, the chief priests, the, the religious people. You see, the, the number one substitute that people have for true surrender to Jesus is religion. Most religious people don't want to surrender everything to God, and so religion is just their scheme in order to try to pay them off, so to speak. Which leads to the second point I want to make, and that is that most rejection is rooted in a desire for control. In Jesus' story, the, the men didn't own the land, they were just renting it, yet they acted like they did, and that's the exact same thing that we do so often. We say things like, well, it's my car. It's my money. It's my house. It's my body. It's my life. 
we act like we're owners when we actually don't own anything. It is not your body. It is not your life. God owns everything. But too many people, when it comes to their life, they treat Jesus like he's the, the GPS system for your car. You're like, okay, I, I understand that in order to get to the destination where I want to go, Jesus has something to do with that. And so I'll just ask him, okay, Jesus, how can I be happy? How can I get to where I want to be? Jesus, you just, you just tell me where to go. Which sounds good in theory until Jesus tells you a direction, the turn that you don't want to do. And then what do you do? You intellectually go, I don't like that. So I'm going to go my way instead of going his way. And what we do every time, he, he says to turn right and we go left, what we're really hoping is that Jesus is going recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. And that he is going to take our bad direction and get us back on course. Now we're going to talk about his grace here in just a moment. His grace can do that for you. But listen, Jesus isn't the navigation for your life. He actually is the owner of your life. And so when we have this desire to control things, we're not going to be truly obedient to him. Point number three. God's grace is amazing, but it doesn't last forever. Now let me explain that. In the story, God is the landowner, and we... We're, we're the renters. And what we need to understand is that the, the vineyard then represents our life. And it's only by God's grace that we can even be renters of the vineyard. He's the one that's given us life. He's the one that's given us the, the vineyard. That's God's grace. Your next breath is a gift from God. That's his grace. In the story the landowner sends messenger after messenger after messenger. God does the same thing for us. That's his grace. He sends us messengers to say, you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn from your wicked ways. You need to have a change of heart. And so you get messengers, whether it's myself or Nate or others. You get his word. You get Bible studies, you have your life groups, you have Christian friends, there's the TV, there's the radio, there's the internet, all kinds of Christian material. There's all these messengers that are coming to you from God saying, you need to, you need to repent. And that's God's grace. That he keeps sending you messenger after messenger after messenger, that he gives you chance after chance after chance after chance. Here's one you've never thought about before. Did you know that you getting older, that's an act of God's grace? Because every single ache and pain that you have is a reminder to you that this life is short. I am not going to be in this body forever. And that what I do in this body has eternal consequences. I'm either going to spend eternity with God in heaven or I'll be eternally separated from him in a very real place called hell. And so as you lose your hair, or the hair gets gray, or, or you get those aches and pains, don't complain about it. Say, God, thank you for this reminder that this life is short. It's only temporary. 
and I need to come into a right relationship with you. Then ultimately God showed his grace by sending his son Jesus, didn't he? He sent Jesus to us. And you know, in this story, it's absolutely amazing here that after the first few servants are killed, that the landowner doesn't send in tanks and missiles to destroy the people. I mean, that's what I would have done, right? I wouldn't have been happy at all. But the landowner goes, surely they will listen to my son. I'd have been like, surely send in the nuclear bombs. Just wipe them out. But that just goes to show how much more merciful God is than what we are. Which, you know, I think there's a lot of people that they misunderstand God. And they think that, well, God's just this harsh judge and he's quick to judge people and, and he just, he wants to punish people. But God is so much more merciful than, than what we are. He's so much more loving than what we are. He, he wants to continue to extend his grace and give chance after chance after chance after chance. He sends messenger after messenger. Finally, he sends his very own son. That's God's grace. You know, the, the prophet Hosea at one point, he said that, that God's grace is like this. He said it's like a husband whose wife utterly humiliates him just goes out and she's just sleeping around with everybody in the town and eventually she sells herself into prostitution and eventually she gets so caught up in that world that she's actually sold as a sex slave that she doesn't even have control of her own life anymore she's now a slave to somebody else and Hosea writes and he says you know what God is like the husband then who goes and he buys back his wife and he washes her body and he cleanses her wounds and he dresses her back in the finest garments and he welcomes her back into the home as his bride. That's God's grace. That's what God has done for every single one of us. Even though you've sold yourself, you've sold your life to Satan, you've done everything that you could possibly do to humiliate God. He says, I still love you enough that I'm going to bring you back in my home. I'm going to clothe you with garments of righteousness. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to wash you of all of your sin. God's grace is amazing. So amazing, in fact, that he did send his one and only son, Jesus. Even though he knew exactly what we as humans would do to Jesus, he still sent him anyway. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still what? While we were still sinners. He didn't wait until we had cleaned ourselves up and then sent Jesus. No, he said, I have to send Jesus because they are sinners. They can't do anything to save themselves. That's God's grace. And really, this whole story is the irony of Christianity, that our murder of Jesus was, in fact, our only means of forgiveness from Jesus. That our putting him to death 
was the only way that we could have life. That the only way God could kill the hatred we have towards Him in our hearts was for us to hate Jesus so much that we would put Him on a cross. Which brings us back to Jesus' words that he, he said here in this parable in Matthew 21, 42 to 44, which we read earlier. Here's what Jesus said. The stone the builders tossed aside is now the most important stone of all. This is something the Lord has done. And it's amazing to us. I tell you, God's kingdom will be taken away from you and given to people who will do what he demands. Anyone who stumbles over this stone will be crushed and anyone it falls on will be smashed to pieces. So again, God's grace is amazing, but what Jesus says here is, it will not last forever. You get to choose, are you going to let his death compel you to come into a relationship with him where you repent of your sins and you use him as the stone, you use him as the, the foundation of your life? Or are you going to continue just to ignore him knowing that eventually that stone will crush you? God in his mercy sends messenger after messenger after messenger. God in his mercy has sent you a son. Will you believe and repent before it's too late? Last point then I want to make today. Number four, I shouldn't flatter myself thinking that God can't work without me. Now we just read there in verse 43 once again that Jesus says to the leaders, look, I'm going to take the kingdom away from people like you and I'm going to give it to people who will do what the Father demands. And the leaders think, well, wait a second. We are the people that are doing what God commands. We are God's chosen people. You can't find anyone that's more faithful than us. In other words, they thought, you can't destroy us. We're the descendants, the sons, the daughters of Abraham. We are your chosen people. You, you can't do that to us. To which Jesus is going to say, you know what? If God wants, he can raise up sons and daughters of Abraham from out of these very stones. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Roman ruler Vespasian came into Jerusalem and he wiped out the entire city. This is about 40 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Christianity had started, but there was still this dual tension there in Jerusalem of this new thing called Christianity and then Judaism. And so the, the Jews were still going to the temple and everything. But when the Roman army comes in and they wipe everybody out, not only do they wipe out Jerusalem, but 985 villages throughout Israel as well. And the biggest thing that they did was they went to that temple, which had taken so many years to build, a massive thing made out of stone. You know what they did? They tore it down. They didn't just make it crumble. They actually tore it down stone by stone by stone and so that not one stone was left piled one on top of another. And that was the end of Judaism as we knew it. It was never the same. The spiritual leadership in Jerusalem then was given fully to the followers of Jesus, these new people called Christians. And what did those Jews who were following Jesus, who did they then give it to? They primarily gave it to the Gentiles, non-Jews, people like you and I. Now Paul, who was one of those Jews that was given this spiritual leadership away, he says, even us as Gentiles, we shouldn't take this for granted. Look at Romans chapter 11, verses 20 to 21. 
Paul writes, remember those branches, meaning the, the Jews of old. Remember those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. And Paul throughout his writings asked this very important question. Are you walking in a manner worthy of the gospel and the grace that you've received? Let me say that again. Are you walking in a way that is worthy of the gospel and of the grace that you have received? Does your worship demonstrate that? Does your lifestyle demonstrate that? Does your giving demonstrate that? Do your words demonstrate that? Are you walking in a manner that is worthy of this great grace that you have received? Listen, if God took the gospel away from Israel, from his chosen people, and gave it to people like us, don't think that he won't take it from you. Don't make you think that he won't take it from your family. Don't make you think that he won't take his grace away from this church. Don't think that he won't take it away from our denomination. He's only going to give it to those who are walking in a manner worthy of the grace that we have been offered. And so we can never be so presumptuous as to believe that, well, God could only do big things through us. And so he'll, he'll, never, he'll never take that away from us. No, we can't do that. Because he demonstrated that he will. And so if we don't humbly live out our faith, he'll take the power of his spirit elsewhere to people where his son is fully received. So I wrap up today, let me ask you just two questions. The first one is this. Have you received the son? God has sent you messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger saying you need to repent fully of your sin. Not like 99.9% .9 repent, but 100%. Give your life fully to him. Have you done that? Have you done that? He's given you chances. But one day, you have been given the last chance. And you don't know when that last chance is coming. And so give yourself to him fully right now. Have you received the Son? Number two, the question that Paul just asked. Are you walking then in a manner worthy of the gospel and the grace that you've received? If you have said, yes, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come in, be the leader of my life. Are you walking in a manner that's worthy of that prayer? If not, today is the day to fully sell out to him, to give your whole life, everything to him. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. Not with your mind, but with your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these past seven weeks as we've been able to go through these various stories that your son Jesus told. And Lord, some of them, they are a little bit more difficult to understand, and hopefully we've been able to unpack them in a way that has been easy. But Lord, today you said it's just absolutely clear that nobody should be able to walk away from hearing this message and be confused about what it is that you want. That you want us to have a relationship with you through your son, 
And you want us to walk fully in your word, in obedience. So Lord, if there's anybody that's here or that's watching or listening online that doesn't yet have a relationship with you, I pray that right now, wherever they're at, whether they're, they're sitting in a seat here or they're driving in a car or they're watching a computer screen, that right now they would just say something simple like, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Be the leader of my life. I give you full control. It's not about me, but it's all about you. Lord, we know that you said that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. But Lord, that's just the first step of saying, I I do to you. But then every day you want us to walk fully in obedience to you. And so Lord, if there's anybody here that's been sort of playing both sides of the fence, that they follow you and your word when it's convenient for them or something that they like or something that they think, okay, this is, this is still relevant for today. But then in other ways, they're disobedient. Lord, help this be the day that they say, okay, Jesus, to follow you means I follow you fully. And so, Lord, again, just help people to confess their sin to you and give their lives fully to you. Lord, we know that we're not going to be perfect in that. But yet we're going, to, we're going to try to be. And when we're falling short, we're going to ask again for your forgiveness and we're going to ask others for their help and helping to hold us accountable and to help us to grow so that every single day we're becoming more and more and more like you. Lord, we are truly better when we're walking this thing called Christianity together. And so help us to to understand that and realize the importance of a church family and a church body, the importance of having Christian friends and and mentors in our lives that can just walk with us and help us. Jesus, we want you to be the cornerstone. We want you to be the foundation of our lives. And so help us to put you there in your rightful place and help us to build upon that then. Thank you. Thank you for your love and your grace, and your mercy. Most of all, thank you for dying on the cross for our sin. I pray all this in your precious and holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.